Our Old Testament lesson is found in Genesis chapter 13, reading verses 2 through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever." I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which, he, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, we confess that in us there is only darkness, but in you there is light. We acknowledge that in us there is only poverty, but in you there is great wealth. We confess that in us there is only death, but in you there is life. And so, Father, we come once again. We come in and through the name of Jesus calling upon you and asking for your help. We ask God today that you write your words upon our heart, that you open wonderful things before our eyes, and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In The Lord of the Rings, the classic trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien, he creates somewhat of a compelling an extremely frustrating character in Frodo Baggins. If you've read the books or if you've watched the movies, you've picked up on this, a character that you can absolutely love, and then a character, on the other hand, who you can then become irritated with. 
His kindness and his generosity are so compelling, but then his hesitancy and his fear perplex you and irritate you. And we find ourselves conflicted about Frodo precisely because he's so real. We can understand him. We get what it is to be filled with virtue and also to be paralyzed by vices. As a character type, literary scholars label this the unwilling hero because, of course, Frodo Baggins, the hobbit, goes on to be the hero of the entire series. The thing about this type of hero is he's not one who simply enjoys immediate and glorious success. He or she stumbles and falters, fails and falls along their journey to maturity. It is someone in development. This is Frodo's story. And we've also seen that this is also important to affirm about this man we know as Abraham. That yes, Scripture presents him to us as a hero. He's a hero of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But as we look at the narrative from Genesis, tracing from chapters 12 through chapter 25, we see that Abraham is not a hero without his faults and his fears and his failures. He was beset by weaknesses at certain stages of his life, overcome and overwhelmed by his fears. And he learned through suffering and through difficulty and through failure to trust God. And this is where Abraham becomes very approachable because his life is a lot like your life and his life is a lot like my life. And when we approach Abraham from this angle of seeing him in all of his struggles and seeing him in his successes, it is then that we can begin to appreciate him, that he was not a glorified saint without problems who just breezed through life like it was nothing. And it's then that we can learn from him about God and about our own pilgrimage of faith as we journey in and towards God. And as we look at Genesis 13 today, there are four things in particular that we see about God and his ways with us in our own journey of faith as we follow after Jesus. First, we'll particularly see God's gracious commitment to us. Second, we'll see the way of renewal, especially after failure. Third, we'll see the way of folly. That is the way that tempts us. And fourth, we'll see God's provision for us in all of our weakness. And so this morning, let's give attention to each of those four things as we learn about the journey of faith, our pilgrimage. First, we see God's gracious commitment to us. If you follow in verse 2, there is a detail given. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now we've been told that Abraham left Egypt. Pharaoh basically kicks him out after learning of his deceit. And then you receive this detail about his household. And you may wonder exactly why Moses included this of all things that he could say. He is telling us that Abraham was wealthy and had great possessions. It's important because in the previous chapter, in chapter 12, if you look in those first three verses, as we discussed two weeks ago, there's a promise made to Abraham. 
and that is that he would be great and that his descendants would be great and that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And in the Old Testament context, that involved the wealth of Abraham's family. To be a great nation, they had to be built up and well-supplied. And so this verse indicates something very significant, that God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham. This was not about Abraham just having a life of luxury. It was about God fulfilling his promises to Abraham so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through this man. However, the detail that frequently gets overlooked here is that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham despite Abraham. Because yes, we learn here that he is very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, but how did he acquire all that? We saw this in the previous chapter. In chapter 12 and verse 16, Abraham has gone down into Egypt And it was there in Egypt that he sells out his wife, Sarah. He says, tell everybody that you are my sister. Because if you don't, they're going to kill me because they're going to find you so beautiful. He thought he would be able to protect her that way. But he got more than he bargained for. And Pharaoh comes and takes Sarah and brings her into his harem. And it was at that point that Abraham becomes wealthy. Because what verse 16 records is that there was a generous dowry paid by Pharaoh to Abraham in order to take Sarah into his household. And friends, it's just here where Abraham has this massive failure that we see that God is able to take our evil and our failures and our faults and what does he do? He uses them to accomplish his his own purposes. And God does this in your life. He does it in mine. He does it on the larger scale of the church's life throughout the world and throughout the nations. He takes all the shortcomings and the setbacks because he's made a promise that he will build his church. And one of the things that we learn here is God's determination and his commitment and how he's unfailing in his covenant and he doesn't swerve from the counsel that he made that he is going to build his church and that he's going to do so through Abraham and he's going to do so today. That God knows all the failures and he sees them, but he will not stop in his quest that all of our bumbling and our failures and our faithfulness do not overcome the faithfulness of God. He is committed to it. He will do it. And please always remember that God works over and against us. He works above and beyond us. He works regardless and despite us. That's the story that we're learning here through this very unwilling hero named Abraham and all his faults and his failures. It's a story of God's great commitment to his plan to bless the nations. But second, in this chapter, we also see the way of renewal. Abraham is on the way back into Canaan, which was the land of promise. And God had set up Canaan as the place in which he was going to bless Abraham and then expand that inheritance, and that inheritance was going to flood the nations. 
And so in verse 3, and he, Abraham, journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. It's important to note that he travels back into the heart of Canaan where he had formerly lived. But this isn't just a simple explanation of his geographical whereabouts. It's also far more happening in these verses. Abraham returns to Canaan, and as he does so, he returns to his faith. Remember that he had retreated down into Egypt to seek refuge there because of fear. God had promised to bless him in the place of promise, but there was a famine, and he left. And he didn't just leave for a long weekend. No, he left to sojourn there, to live, to dwell there in Egypt. And when Abraham did so, he didn't just change addresses. He left his faith behind him. He had forsaken God's promise. And we also see nothing mentioned in that section of chapter 12 about Abram building an altar and calling on the name of God. It is a silent critique of his spiritual condition as he went down into Egypt. He was retreating from God. But here suddenly, Abraham returns. He returns to the very site earlier where he had received these promises and he had offered his praise to God, building an altar and giving thanks to him, setting apart that land as God's possession, that these promises are true and that I'll build my life on them. And here he comes fresh out of all of his failures. He returns to Canaan and returns to that former faith, renewing himself in front of God, believing that God is going to make good on his promise. As he returns, he has come to his senses and he calls on God. He doesn't call on God out of his arrogance and his pride, but he calls on God out of poverty and out of need. Abram was only back in the land of Canaan, and you have to imagine that that journey back was a hard one because he only left Egypt because Pharaoh dismissed him for all of his foolishness. But he arrives back humbled. And friends, this is what is important for us to learn from Abraham. After all of his failures and all of his fear, God renews his relationship with him. It's quite remarkable, really. Abraham calls on God, and he's received by God. You see how bad he has made a mess of things in the second half of chapter 12, where fear induces him to go down into Egypt, and then he forsakes his wife because he's scared once again. He's not believing that God is going to provide a seed for him, and he's also not believing that God's going to bless him in the land, the two promises that God had made to him. And so he completely collapses. But here, he calls on God in the great hope of renewal. And it's here that we learn of the gracious God and the way and the path of renewal. And what we need to affirm today is no matter what Egypt we have wandered down into, Wherever our fears have left us, when we decline from the promises of God and when our faith collapses and that our life turns into folly and to further bad decisions, wherever that particular place is for you that you are never beyond the reach of God, 
that God rescued Abraham from Egypt. And he brings him back and renews him. And Abraham humbled, calls upon God. And that God can pull you out. Abraham, no doubt, had to feel hopeless and lost that this God would never have anything else to do with him. But he returned to that altar. And God invites you to that altar today as well. You don't have an altar as Abraham did because we have a hill where there was a cross and you have Jesus, the one who sits at God's right hand. He is your altar. It is in and through him that you come to God. And because he is the one who was without sin and yet died in your place, he can be your righteous advocate. And when you come to God today and you call on him, you call on him through Jesus. And God sees not all your sins and your failures and your fears and all the ways that you've messed it up. But what does he see? The righteous advocate pleading on your behalf, interceding for you. And so we don't try to clean ourselves up. We don't try to undo the past because we can't. But we come to the Father through the Son who stands perfectly there on our behalf, interceding for us. And so we call on him. We call on him in our need. We call on him in our poverty. We call on him in all of our failure. And we look to him and him alone. That's the way and the path of renewal that we learn from Abraham. And third, in this pilgrimage, we also see the way of folly. At the heart of chapter 13, what most of the verses are devoted to is a conflict that breaks out between Abraham and his nephew Lot. It was between their herdsmen in verses 6 and 7. Ironically, the conflict breaks out because God is blessing them. The land couldn't support all of the livestock. And so the herdsmen were fighting and jockeying for position for fields and who would be able to graze where. So Abraham takes the initiative and he makes Lot an offer to separate. The scene from what we know of the geography is somewhere outside of Bethel, between Bethel and Ai, and set a significant elevation in this area. And so what's described for us is Abraham saying, take the right or to the left. You can imagine that the right is going down to the south and the left is going to the north. And they're looking over this tremendous horizon, a beautiful vista that we know exists. And he says, go one of these two ways. And in front of them is all the land of the promise. What unfolds in Lot's decision displays his folly, and it does so in two ways. Lot makes a choice, but first, as the nephew, in ancient Near Eastern culture, Lot was to defer to his esteemed uncle. He was basically an adopted father. He had taken Lot into his tuition and care, brought him along with him, provided for him. Lot's blessing was only a result of Abraham's blessing of him. And so he was to defer. This would have been the cultural norm. But what Lot does is he sees green fertility and he chooses that. He is seeking to advantage himself and to take advantage of Abraham. 
This was his first failure. But his second failure is that Lot didn't just look to the right or to the left. He actually looked somewhat in the direction of what we know the Jordan Valley is, is that is to the southeast. He veers in a certain way. And he veers and he looks outside of the land of promise. Abraham had invited him to share in the promised land with him. We just simply need to separate. But Lot looks and sees all the life there in the Jordan Valley amongst the cities. And he says that's where he wants to be. The passage then reveals to us something further in verse 11, that Lot journeyed east. If you were to look more broadly in the book of Genesis, you would see any eastward journey is defined negatively. Adam and Eve, after rebelling against God and turning against him, traveled east out of the garden. East of Eden is now the definition of our lives. But then you would see that Cain traveled east. And you would see that the builders of the Tower of Babel traveled east. It's always negative. And so Lot going to live in the valley of the Jordan River Valley amongst the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is characterized to us very negatively. That Lot was departing from promise. And you can see what is compelling him at this point. It wasn't faith in the promise but it was rather sight. He saw the green, lush valley, and this is what he wanted. And he went outside of the promised land, and he had no permission to do so, but he acted on his own wisdom, and he acted by his own resource, and he acted by his own values. It's at this point that Lot is moving outside of the faith that he was to inherit from Abraham. Calvin sums it up quite succinctly. He says, Lot when he fancied that he was dwelling in paradise, was nearly plunged into the depths of hell. He thought that river valley was going to be the best thing. But he went outside of the wisdom and the promise and the command of God, and he went according to his own wisdom, and he was plunged into a nightmare, as we'll see in coming weeks. And friends, this applies today, and that we too are called to live by faith, and we're not called to live by sight. We've been given exceedingly great promises in the gospel. You've been promised that your sins are forgiven. And yet you also still limp along with senses of guilt and shame. And we have to trust by faith. Not according to the feelings that are accumulated within us. But we have to trust by faith that when God says that we're forgiven through Jesus, that we are truly and sincerely forgiven. You've also been told the great promise that you've been freed from sin's controlling power. And yet day in and day out and week by week, it doesn't always feel this way. Our sins can seem to weigh us down and they seem to have control of us. But we're to receive that promise in faith. We've also been promised that we're the heirs of the world to come. And that these bodies that we inhabit and live in will one day be raised And yet there's one universal reality that we're very accustomed to, that death is undefeated. Death is undefeated in our experience, but by faith we are to know that it is not undefeated for all, save one. 
that it has been defeated once. And we're to trust that because it was defeated once, it will be trampled down and finally destroyed once and for all. That's the promise out front. And yet in the middle of our lives and all the mundaneness and all the challenges, we can look at all of that promise and we can doubt and we can grow uncertain. We can think to ourselves, is God really going to make good on all this? Is all of this really worth it? Because we've also heard a promise that when we are raised, we'll live in a world where all things are right, where everything's made new, where there's no injustice and war and violence. There's no senseless and capricious violence. There's no lack and scarcity. It's a world pregnant with meaning and fulfillment, and God is there dwelling with us. And honestly, it's hard for us because of the world that we live in and how saturated it is with our own sin and our own failure, then our corporate evil, all the things that we do to one another. It's hard for us to even imagine that world. And friends, we too can lose faith. We can begin to live by sight like Lot. We can begin to embrace other things, to think, no, I'm just going to live for the present. I'm not going to live in light of a great future. I'm going to embrace what I can hold in my hands. I'm going to live for my best life now. And that's not a life in accord with faith. It's a life in accord with sight. And we're being warned of the folly of Lot here in our way and path of pilgrimage. But finally, as we come to the end of the chapter in verses 14 through 18, we also see God's provision for us in all of our weakness. Abraham is at a vulnerable moment here when his nephew Lot, who would have been his rightful heir, God had promised Abraham that he is going to have a great family, and of course, his wife was barren. So the likely successor of that family was his nephew. And there's an incredible loss that takes place here when Lot goes east into the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to camp around them. Abraham would be depressed and discouraged. He would be forlorn, thinking that he had been forsaken, that his one hope of having an heir is now gone. Gone into sight, not faith. The promise is now all under threat. But then something very Interesting happens in these verses because God comes to Abraham and he does two things. He comes to renew his promise and the two things that he does is he asks him to consider the dust of the earth. Something that has not number, something that we could never calculate. And God affirms his promise and says, as you look at the dust of the earth, the dirt of the ground, so shall your descendants be. And so God comes and reaffirms his promise that you are going to be a great family whether you can see how that's going to happen or not. I'm going to accomplish this, is what God is saying to Abraham. And then secondly, he takes him on a field trip. He takes him around the land of promise. Abraham goes on a walking tour, and God says, everything that you see Every place that you set your foot, 
that will be the land that your descendants inherit and become a blessing to the nations of the earth. It's visceral. It was tangible. It was real. Abraham had received these promises, and now God is giving something visually to connect with. And friends, this is what we call in the New Testament a sacrament. That is when God connects his promise, his word, with a physical sign. And that sign is designed to seal and confirm the promises of God that we would know that they're real and were true. We have two of those signs today, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and this is why it's given to you. It's so that you know the promises are good. Because can you wander off? Can you lose faith? Can you lose sight of the promise? Yes. The temptations a lot are real. And we need those tangible signs in all of our weakness to hold to all of these incredibly great promise that God has given us. And it's in those times of doubt and uncertainty that we need to rest in God's promises, in God's purpose, and in God's word, all that he has said. This is God's provision for us in all of our weakness. Hold fast to those signs of faith. Hold them in faith. Let them draw you to what they signify. And this is the pilgrimage. Abraham and his failures and yet experiencing renewal. And we see God's great commitment to this project to bless the nations. It's far deeper than your commitment or my commitment will ever be. He even uses our failures towards his good end. We see the way of renewal in which we return to God and find ourselves on the other side of failure, restored as sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. We see the way of folly, the way that tempts us, the way of our weakness as we live by sight and not by faith. And yet we see God's nurture and sustenance for us along that journey and pilgrimage of faith, exactly what we need. Food for the road, something to sustain us, to provide for us in all of our weakness. This is the pilgrimage of faith. In all of its weaknesses, we have a strong God. Know that he's more committed. He's committed to you in Jesus Christ. And so let's go to him now. Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham. Even as we're able to learn from his failures and his faults, we thank you also for this strong moment of faith in which he reasserts and returns to his rest, his rest in you, and that you freely and gladly receive him. And so we come, and we come in Jesus, and we call upon you as Abraham did. Renew us and provide for us, sustain us, nurture us. Grant us to be affirmed and confirmed in all of your promises that you'll never leave us, forsake us, and nothing can separate us from your great love in Jesus Christ. Help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.